Hi, this is County Executive Barry Glassman, and you're listening to Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with my co-hosts, Michael Sanderson. And Michael, we are coming live this week from the Winter Conference here in Cambridge. This is becoming a tradition. Well, I mean, Dorchester County welcomes us with open arms. We're happy to have a live episode of the podcast. We've got an audience here ready to talk one of our favorite topics, and that is changes in technology and how that's driving public policy. So happy to have a group here with us, and we have some great guests to talk with. Sure. So we have Joanne Hovis, president of CTC Technology and Energy. Joanne, thank you so much for being with us. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And Arthur Scott, associate legislative director at the National Association of Counties, NACO. Arthur, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. And Michael, we're focusing on new technology driving new policy, the ever-shrinking island of cable television. Explain what that means and what we're going to get into today. We love talking tech, and we think this is one of the more interesting areas of public policy. And we know that telecommunications writ large is just a moving target, period. And one thing that we find out is in the area of telecommunications, a little bit like, I don't know, you know, ride sharing and these uh, the, the whole sharing economy that we've talked about before, telecommunications, we have laws on the books that are decades old, that are written around infrastructure and services that are no longer anywhere near as siloed as they once were. And so as, as things are changing, we think policymakers at the county level, but also at the state and federal level, are duty-bound to try and catch up with that. And we've got the right people here to talk us through how that's unfolding and what lies ahead. So Joanne and Arthur, you know, first of all, we're talking about cable television. What does cable television mean here you know, as we enter into 2020? The line, it seems to be increasingly blurred. What what is your take on that? The service of cable television is effectively a dying service. It is the way that we all received video in the past. Some of us still receive video in that way, but that is very fast changing. The underlying network has not changed. It's the same Mm -hmm. infrastructure. It's the cable network that was built for one-way video back in the 70s and 80s. -hmm. But the service, cable television, the regulated service, is no longer something that is really growing. And in fact, it's probably poised to shrink dramatically very soon. And, and, but that, that is almost cable per se is the part of that. That's the ever shrinking island. But the companies who we associate with old school cable television delivery, they're not necessarily floundering. They're broadening, they're enriching their offerings and just taking on, you know, a whole different posture. They absolutely are. And they're doing quite well. They are not only in the broadband business in terms of offering big data connections, uh, on which they have, by the way, some really nice profit margins. They're going into the mobile business. They are increasingly in the content business, uh, mm-hmm. such as Comcast with its acquisition of NBC Universal. Um, so the regulatory world.
world is changing and shrinking and the role of local government is shrinking, but the what we called cable companies for a long time and are still really the same companies are doing quite well in this new world. Arthur, you know, Joanne, she mentioned regulation and we have talked a lot about regulation, access to rights away, community access issues here in Maryland. At the national level, this has to be going on in other states. We, we had an issue with 5G here in Maryland. We want there to be community input. Of course, we all want 5G. What are you seeing at the national level when it comes to regulation? Sure. So I think a number of things actually are of concern to local governments and our ability to serve as stewards of public property, safety and welfare. Um, but I think it's important to start first back at the roles and responsibilities of local governments. Mm-hmm. We're talking about uh, uh we are the single largest stakeholder in our nation's road and bridge infrastructure. Mm-hmm. 40% of our nation's roads, four out of 10 of our bridges across the country are county owned. We also own and operate over a thousand hospitals and spend billions of dollars each year investing in economic development opportunities uh, for our communities. This awesome responsibility uh, as the stewards of public property, safety and welfare depend on two major components. Um, that is transparency. Uh, and participation, transparency in the decisions that are being made uh, as they deliberate how do we uh, uh, properly leverage the tax dollars in the best interest of, of our communities, right, and then right. how do we encourage participation in this process. Um, all of that is reliant upon access to information. I think that's really what we're t- here talking about, whether it's through cable or, or Internet, um, end of the day. People need information, and that's what is uh, so concerning about what the FCC has done over the past few months with regards to not only uh, the cable in-kind agreements around franchise agreements, but also, as you mentioned earlier, the 5G uh, component. Uh, They enacted a ruling that would severely limit local zoning authority for local governments over where uh, small cell sites would go up. So. It, it, the, the cable issue is not happening in isolation. We're talking mm-hmm. about a series of events that are happening at the, at the federal level that are concerning because it is showing a lack of understanding of the roles and responsibilities of what local governments do. Right. I think that you, you put a pin right on it that even my setting this up a little bit by talking about telecommunications is still too narrow, that this is really a conversation about information. How do you get it? Who has access to it? Through what channels do you receive it? And it's, it's part of economic development. It's, you know, it's part of quality of life and, and so forth. So this is a broader conversation than, you know, I mean, I was a kid in the day of the boom of cable television and it was sort of like, well, who has HBO? Um, this is a whole different conversation and much more closely nestled with, you know, people's identity and sense of place and so forth. Absolutely. And the role of local government in that, the critical role is not only not acknowledged, but I think not respected in any way in some of the federal policymaking and in some states and the state policymaking as well. Um, happily, we are not in one of those states, but there there's no recognition of how important local assets and contributions and taxpayer contributions, as Arthur pointed out, have been to the deployment of infrastructure and local policy and regulation. But in fact, local governments have been vilified. That is a political matter. That's a matter of changed Mm. ideas about regulation. That's not driven by technology change. Mm. Mm. We could have had technology change and still 
understood and respected the importance of local processes and local policy and local input. But technology change has become an excuse for reducing and disrespecting the role of local communities. Mm -hmm. So, so I, mean, if, I think this, this sets us up to talk a little bit about the FCC. This is the Federal Communications Commission. It's the federal agency that has oversight over at least some pieces of what we think of as telecommunications. And that's, that's a little more nuanced than meets the eye to, to, the, to the lay audience. But can, can, you, can the two of you kind of walk us through a little bit about, you've made references to recent decisions mm -hmm and posture changes from the federal government, we all sort of on, are on lower on the food change than the feds. Mm -hmm. uh, so can you walk us through a little bit of how things are, how the sands are shifting at the federal level? Sure. So when, when we talk about the cable issue uh, specifically, uh, earlier this year, the FCC enacted a ruling that would severely uh, uh, limit the local government's ability to ensure that uh, critical programs and services are delivered uh, through the way of of local franchising agreements. Uh, what it essentially allows the, the service providers, the cable service providers to do is to attach a fair market value to some of the in-kind components to that franchising agreement. Uh, the problem is, is there's a 5% cap on those, on, on uh, uh, annual revenue for these franchising agreements. And if that in-kind value exceeds that 5% cap, we start calling into question the ability to provide things like peg channels, your public education and government right. channels. So important, right? Absolutely franchise agreements. Those, those, those have been put into place not only to make sure that, you know, folks in rural areas get access, right, right. to incentivize and make sure that the cable companies were making, you know, bringing the lines out to those folks, but also public access channels, making sure that community has access to, the, to that vital yep. information. And that goes back to the transparency issue that I brought up earlier. Critical. But, but some of critical. that is, that's, that's sort of the old school way of thinking about this, that at one time, an exclusive franchise uh, agreement with one company in an area gave a local government leverage to say, but we need you to serve the hard to reach areas. We need you to offer these things that are going to be education for the community and public access. There was a there was an implied trade um, or really an express trade, you know, between the local governments granting that right of way access and some exclusivity. So now cable isn't really by itself any longer. There are a variety right. of other ways to get information that makes things more complicated. Well, and that, that, I'm sorry to interrupt. I think that speaks back to the, the issue that this is not just happening in isolation with cable. We're talking about what they're doing in next generation telecommunications with their ruling over 5G because now we're talking about, right. you know, mixed use next generation 5G technology how, will be how large cities and, and most urban environments will be receiving that information. Um, it doesn't mean that it's going to be particularly viable in rural communities anytime soon. That's why it's important that we don't completely, you know, cut our arm off on one, one side just because the next one's coming in behind it. Um, but uh, I think Seeing this trend at the FCC is is more concerning than any one single uh, ruling that they've enacted over and the past year. And I think our listeners understand 5G. You know, everybody wants 5G. We want these fast internet speeds. We need 5G, right? We have all these smart devices. Our telecommunications industry, our emergency services certainly can use this technology. But Arthur, you mentioned something about rural communities and access to this technology. Joanne, what have you seen in terms of rural access to, to this type of technology, if there isn't a way to incentivize providers as a local government, are they going to provide access to this technology in areas that maybe don't have as many you know, paid users as you would in an urban setting? 
The reason we don't have um, 5G emerging in rural areas, and by the way, don't expect 5G in rural areas absent massive amounts of subsidy from the federal government, small amounts of which may yet emerge, but that's not quite clear what it looks like. But the reason we don't have it is for the same reason that we don't have other kinds of broadband networks, right? It's, It's a pure matter of infrastructure, not technology, infrastructure. It is expensive and difficult to build infrastructure mm-hmm. in rural areas where you have relatively few customers. So your return on investment is going to be far more modest. Part of what troubles me so much about what is happening at the FCC and some of the the narrative about the role of local governments is that lack of deployment is being blamed on local governments and on local government process and on zoning and on fees and on all the things that government very reasonably does. And yet what is really underlying lack of deployment is rural in rural areas is the economics of rural deployment. Mm-hmm. And this is a distraction and it's a very unfair charge against localities. And it doesn't solve our broadband problem because if you change the way the industry has to deal with a locality in Rockville, let's say, it is not going to change anything about how deployment happens in rural Worcester County. Right. And and that, I think, is not at all acknowledged. We've had this shift in focus from what should the industry be doing to talking about local government being the problem. It's it's really a problematic narrative, and it's not about technology. It's much more about politics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that's a it's a great point to make about how local governments handle these issues and, you know, the one size fits all solution that the FCC seems to be pushing. But we talked about transparency earlier. There are processes that local governments have to go through to make sure that their residents understand what's going on and that they have input. So we want to make sure that the venue is there to do that. And also, like you said, Arthur, we have a responsibility to protect our community, to make sure that tax dollars are used in the most efficient way possible. So it sounds like the FCC is just glancing over all of that. You know, unfortunately, as you said, Joanne, placing the blame on a lot of this on local governments. You're absolutely right. And that's uh, kind of looking namely at the 5G ruling that was recently enacted is so concerning. Uh, when you put a timetable, what they call a shot clock, right. uh, with their 5G ruling, they uh, established a 60-day window that local governments would have to approve a uh, an application for a small cell site. We're talking about one small cell site being put up on one telephone pole or a, an intersection on a public rights of way. Um, the paradigm shift from 4G to 5G is going to is going from one tower servicing a large jurisdictional area to multiple small cell sites across that same area just to provide uninterrupted service. So the number every, of every like every several hundred feet, yeah, you know, to try and cover one busy yep. commercial strip, exactly, you need a little box someplace yep. like every four yep. or five hundred feet, and as opposed to every two box. miles. Yeah, the might be a pretty thirty-eight big box, by the way. Feet, I right. think is what right. they we, we, we definitely <laughs> dealt with that. So, and when you say sixty days, you could have hundreds of applications, and they all exactly. need to be turned around within exactly. sixty days. It's not just one; it, right. it could be a lot. Right, it could be a lot, and that's just one provider. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about multiple providers, and and some areas where you're going to have a lot of small cell applications. The concern is, is that uh, in a lot of places, local governments are required to, whether it be by state or local law, um, to conduct certain pr- processes and procedures, environmental reviews, historic preservation reviews, all of the public comment periods, all of these things that local governments have to do in order to be able to give a, a positive or a negative uh, response on an application have to be conducted. And now the FCC is saying you have to be able to do that within this 60-day window. And under the FCC regulation, 
if if local governments are unable to meet that that shot clock, they then face uh, uh, lawsuits from the service provider under what's called effective prohibition. Even more concerning than that is actually simultaneously with this ruling, even though it's currently embattled in, in the circuit court, uh, Congress is actually working to move a bill that would essentially codify uh, the FCC's 5G ruling and actually take it a step further and say that if local government is unable to meet that 60-day window, uh, the service provider no longer needs the local government's permission and under a provision called um, uh, deemed granted right. can go ahead and place their small cells on public property. Um, very, very concerning. And when I talk about uh, in, in my lobbying efforts, local zoning authority, that's through the perspective of, of a local government. But that it, the issue is much grander than just local zoning authority, because we're not talking about just removing the zoning authority of a local government. As we mentioned many, many times before, local elected officials are sent there to work on behalf of their residents. Your The FCC, these rulings, that bill is usurping local authority hard stop. The ability for local residents to have a say in what's going on in their community. And this this issue gets thick quickly. So, I I mean, I think it's understandable that there's a lot of jargon and language. But I know when our state legislature has, has two years in a row had some pretty intense debate about this topic. But when community residents show up and they say, the way I read this bill is it takes away my community's ability to guide how does this look and where does it go? I mean, I want 5G. I mean, there are some people who are saying I'm worried about the technology. Right, but right. even among people who, who are enthusiastic about what the technology will bring, you have people saying, but can't we get maybe like multiple providers on the same poll? Can we can we coordinate that? And we've seen statewide legislation that, I mean, let's be fair, it, it's designed to make this process easier and simpler and smoother right. for the companies that need to deploy. I understand where they're coming from, but what that is, is that that's at the expense of that kind of community input. Um, we're lucky in Maryland that we already have some pretty aggressive deployment in lots of places in Maryland that's going pretty well. Hundreds of cell sites, you know, small cell sites in Baltimore City where they've basically been negotiating. And the, a company says, we want to do, you know, these eight blocks of this major city. And the, and the city says, okay, but that's probably not the best site. Can we go another 150 feet up? Because this site's going to be better. It'll be less intrusive on something that's down here. That seems like the best way to go, even if it's a little more hands-on than just the clean sweep that the FCC right. and the, these statewide bills have in mind. Yeah, and we have seen some providers in Maryland working with local governments, and we have to be fair and point that out. And Michael, as you said, I mean, we've seen, I think, over a 1,000 now or close to a 1,000 deployments throughout the state. So so it is working. It seems to, MAKO has always taken this, and we don't need a statewide bill. We don't need federal legislation. This is working. We just have to get that input. We also have some communities that have buried all their utilities, right? So when you start putting these towers up, it goes against everything that they've done. They've spent a lot of money to do that. And so you really have to take into account the community design, what residents are looking for. And and when you start, you know, usurping that authority, of course, 
as you said, full stop. You're usurping that local authority. Our residents certainly have an issue with that. And they're not going to be calling, you know, their congressperson when this happens and a box shows up outside their window. They're going to be calling their local government, right? And we're not going to be able to do anything about it, it sounds like, if that bill moves forward. And critically, I think it's just so important for us to recognize that the goal of deployment and the goal of local input and local process, these things are not at odds with each other. It has been framed as somehow Mm. these are um, really not possible to achieve both. But the example of Baltimore City that you Mm. brought up is a perfect example of where this is happening smoothly, well, and I I give credit to the carriers, but I want to give credit to Baltimore City, too, and to all of the counties and cities around the state that are working with the industry, that have processes that work. They've planned ahead. They're protecting their interests. They're protecting aesthetic interests. They've developed process that gives the industry speed and predictability, Mm -hmm. which I understand the industry wants, but at the same time, that process is theirs. It's not mandated by an unelected official in Washington, D.C., Obviously, we're, we're touching on multiple topics under this umbrella of information and telecommunications. I guess I'm interested in I mean, our, our audience at this conference and at this event are largely county elected officials and county level decision makers. So with, with, with what you've seen in other states across the country and, and with the, the county governments and so forth that you've worked with, I think we're interested and this audience would be interested in what should we be preparing for? I mean, some of this is we're spectators for what's mm-hmm. happened at the FCC. We can write a letter, but our ability to affect a five member body vote is probably mm-hmm. pretty limited. Uh, to some degree, we're invested in the process at the state legislature. We've been lucky in Maryland. Our legislature has been, let's let this unfold on its own. But eventually, this comes home to county governments. Is it is it the next time you renegotiate your cable agreements? Or does this happen in some more subtle way sooner than that? Well, I think from the standpoint of how broadband gets deployed in rural Maryland, and particularly the most rural places, I think we probably have to understand that cable franchising as a regulatory mechanism is not going to be the tool for doing that. Mm -hmm. But even in the past, it really wasn't because there was no franchising obligation for the companies to build in areas of very low density, um, just because the economics are not there. And and rural counties should be thinking strategically about the other tools they've got in the toolbox and the other strategies that they can develop, including public-private partnerships and looking to the very robust federal grant programs that are underway and, and state grant programs for rural broadband and, and thinking about how they will get that done as opposed to looking to the, the cable regulatory mechanism. Mm-hmm. I will say, though, I, I still think that it's important from a regulatory – it should be – from a regulatory standpoint, something that counties have available, that they own assets and where they make those assets available to private carriers, Mm -hmm. they should be able to negotiate. And that may get rural broadband built in a 5G or even a 4G context, Mm -hmm. getting more wireless out there. So we're giving you access to our assets. We we can choose to do it at at lower cost or put it below market. All What the FCC has done that troubles me is has said, you can't negotiate, you can't be creative, you can't respond to local interests. And I'm a broadband analyst. I can tell you that is not good for broadband. might be good for those companies, but right. it's not good for broadband deployment. So that's what I would say to Maryland counties is think about – 
other tools and other strategies that you have in place, um, because it's not clear that the FCC understands the the real concerns that you have about broadband deployment. Mm -hmm. Even, I will say, as a matter of background, as we talk about deployment of legitimate broadband, uh, people think of Maryland as a dense metropolitan state. And there is certainly a channel in this state geographically that I suspect the density of, of broadband service is high. But there are large swaths in this state that are wholly unserved. And we're in the middle of the eastern shore of Maryland, surrounded by a map that's got more gaps than good. Mm-hmm. Right. Even in central Maryland, there are parts of Montgomery County where there is no broadband service. Mm-hmm. There are parts of Harford County. There are parts of Carroll County. Um, I, it is actually remarkable how low density areas, and they may just be small areas in our bigger, in our in our more urban counties are unserved. And in our very rural counties, the need is absolutely enormous. Right. You talk about economic development, education. Those are reliant now on high-speed internet. So, I mean, obviously, we need to make sure those communities get high-speed internet. And it sounds like counties should not be relying on traditional cable franchise agreements to make that happen. I would say one of our favorite taglines at NACO is, if you've seen one county, you've seen one county, and there's 3,069 of them. (laughs) Um, That is all to say that... um, you know, what works in one county may not work the same way or at all in others. Um, and I think this issue underscores that, uh, you know, there are great examples of, of where uh, relationships between service providers, cable or Internet and, and counties can coexist and and achieve these same goals. And I think it's important to to underscore the fact that outside of the industry and maybe there's their stockholders you'd be hard-pressed to find another stakeholder that is a bigger champion for the build-out of telecommunications infrastructure than your local elected officials it is an asinine assumption to make on local governments that we are in some way trying to prohibit this it is absolutely not the case uh, it, it, it would serve as a uh, force multiplier to the mo- to the most significant degree for local governments to have this infrastructure and access to, th- to this information. So that's, it's not that we're not working towards the same goal we are. Um, it's just a lack of understanding of how local governments serve as a partner in that intergovernmental partnership uh, that is really causing such a hang up here. And, you know, we talk about um, uh, uh, where it works and where it doesn't for 5G. We've got great examples of counties that have that, Maricopa, as I mentioned. But um, this the same is true for cable. It, it may not be the answer in a lot of places, and that's quickly evaporating in a lot of places. You're absolutely right. In other places, it is still very much critically sure. important in, in, in some some communities. Uh, but that goes back to my, my, my previous comment about not cutting one arm off to save another. Right. Um, it is perfectly uh, logical for us to build both uh, very basic access to, to internet and cable, as well as push the edge of telecommunications and the 5G, the, the deployment of 5G. You know, but it's like everything else we see in local government. And I think government in general, one size fits all does not work, right? We, we have all these different counties across the country. We have 24 counties here in Maryland. One size fits all does not work. So when the federal government steps in and usurps state and local authority, it, it certainly is something that we pay attention to. I know you're paying attention to it at the federal level as well. I want to talk to you about how streaming services are affecting 
the industry and how the industry is evolving because we know now everybody has access to Netflix and obviously you need high-speed internet to do that. Uh, the revenue models of some of these these uh, mobile providers and cable providers are increasingly reliant, I think, on this type of streaming. So is that a, a, another reason why they really, really want to get this technology built out as quickly as possible because they understand that maybe the consumers are, are shifting in terms of how they get their content and that requires higher speed internet? I think they're recognizing that there's enormous growth with regard to mobile and that consumers are increasingly getting content over their phones mm -hmm. or tablets. Um, I, I still think it's not going to shift the economics of rural deployment because there just aren't enough customers right, relative right. to the cost of deployment. Um, but the, these are companies that are all in on the streaming era. We are, we have gone from a world where the companies, the big, content providers and the cable companies were trying to protect cable television as a service, right? One-way video delivered um, in this, you know, traditional television way where at 7 o'clock at night you get a certain show, right. 150 channels, whatever that was. We're not really in that world anymore. Comcast, for example, is about to launch one of the most important streaming services in the country, which is called Peacock, based on its ownership of all of that NBC universal content. That's going to launch early next year. Mm -hmm. AT&T, which is one of the biggest telecommunications providers in the country, is doing the same with HBO Max. They are content owners these days. They are shifting their own customers over to streaming video rather than the other ways that they delivered video in the past. To give you an illustration of that, by the way, mm. over the last few weeks, AT&T has been running promotions in certain parts of the country where for new customers who sign up for their data services over a fixed um, wire, they are giving a Roku box or mm -hmm. a Roku stick, mm -hmm. enabling them to stream. That's a really interesting development when a company that sells video services is effectively teaching or enabling its customers to not buy traditional video services. Right, right. So we're in the midst of a real change in how consumers get video. Doesn't necessarily mean huge technology changes, and it doesn't necessarily get us lots of new network deployment, but it definitely shifts the world of cable mm -hmm. franchising mm -hmm. from the standpoint of a community that has relied on those revenues in particular over time. So, so if, the, if this world is kind of breaking into two pieces where content and delivery are separable, even if they're under the same umbrella in a corporate sense, on the delivery side is where public policy is caught in the past that local governments have written documents with cable providers who have this kind of instrument that goes underground and goes through our rights of way and so forth. And that is a delivery mechanism that could clearly be swapped out for any of several other delivery mechanisms. But access to the internet itself by the Federal government, one of the most happy moments for the Congress every couple of years is when they renew, I've forgotten the name of the act, but the, the, the Internet Must Be Free Act since renewed six, eight, 12 times. Right. Mm -hmm. So state and local governments can't find a revenue source out of delivery mechanisms of mm -hmm. the Internet per se. I guess we're in a gray zone as far as the content and Chicago is going to sort that out through the courts, maybe. Mm -hmm. But I mean, so, so we're in a we're in a strange spot there where we've got a variety of old laws being applied somewhat differently to what are increasingly comparable right. services. Right. And the the frequency at which we see these generational shifts in, in technology from 
I mean, it was, seems like just yesterday it was 3G. Now 4G is the old game. Now right. we're pushing 5G. How long until we're talking 6G? Because of that, we it, it is inevitable. Numerous county officials across the country are asking, "How do we future proof? How do we how do we ensure <laughs> that the investments we're making are future proof?" And I think a, a large portion of the problem is a vast misunderstanding of how 5G actually works. Um, 5G utilizes a fiber broadband backbone, backhaul fiber. Um, it is no different than the fiber that's connecting your four 4G towers. Right. We're just talking about it in much smaller increments going from block to block right. to block to block. So fiber is is going to be the game that you have to kind of set your sights on. You can look past it uh, if you want, but that is the best bet at ensuring that the next generation of telecommunications infrastructure that comes into your town is is uh, uh, able to deliver that level of, of service. So um, it's really all we're talking about from 4G to 5G is the nodes at the end of that fiber that are changing. Right. What's not changing you is still that, need that fiber. Right. right. That's such a good point. It's a it's incredibly important to understand because I think particularly when our legislature, for example, considers changing the law to enable the companies with the idea that, oh, this is going to lead to 5G in rural areas. The wireless technology is only the very, very last piece of the network. 5G is a technology that is designed to go very, very fast over very, very short distances. What that means is that it needs a wire really nearby. Mm -hmm. Now, where are there wires? In our dense areas. They don't exist in our rural areas. That's exactly the problem we're facing. So 5G is going to be very hard to make work unless you've got a lot of fiber in those rural areas. We're not going to be able to leapfrog the need to build fiber infrastructure by just relying on wireless because mm -hmm. wireless doesn't work without wires. That's a great, point. That's a great right. point. If 4G is, is economically a, a non-starter, 5G is definitely not. That's exactly right. And that's yeah. why I really loved your point, by the way, Arthur, about the fact that Counties can think about future-proofing themselves by thinking of fiber as a meaningful investment, mm -hmm. enabling companies to build it, supporting them, building their own fiber, expanding their assets anytime they have a cost-effective way to do mm -hmm. it because they're just adding a whole lot of options to their future mm -hmm. by doing that. And it's helpful so long as the state allows municipally owned infrastructure. There are a number of states that prevent local governments from actually owning uh, that initial infrastructure and leasing it out to service providers. So there's a lot of challenges, not only at the federal level, but at the state level that, that create a checkerboarding of, of regulations and rules. And, and so, uh, you know, I think it's a shame to see at the federal level such a gross misunderstanding of, of the roles and responsibilities and how local governments can serve as a partner in building this out quickly. Right. Well, we're still seeing that debate rage on. You know, it, it's been a while since I've heard this phrase "digital divide," and that was kind of the you know the going thing for a while. I, I have to think that that concept be, between the those who have and those who have not, if that's a problem today, if if we're going to supercharge the areas that have the instruct infrastructure, yeah. they have the cable and the, and the fiber that you can attach to, and so forth, that that this notion of the digital divide is going to create even more space right. between the built up and dense areas right. and, and those areas who are hard to serve today right. and maybe even harder to serve right. with the next wave of technology. And then what comes after right. that? I, I don't know. I don't know what technological advance. I, I don't know if there's enough motivation to say, how do we find a way to connect to those two houses at the end of that two and a half mile road? Right. 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 That's where the state and federal support programs have to come in. Mm -hmm. Just like all infrastructure, 
in rural areas, there is not a private sector business case to build it. And so mm-hmm. we need, and, and I'm very thankful that this state um, has recognized, created a rural broadband grant program. The federal government, Congress has appropriated $550 million for next year for a rural broadband grant program. The, the federal government and the state governments are going to have to, and local governments, mm-hmm. make up some portion of what it's going to take to get the infrastructure to rural areas because it's simply not something where the economics will work. I think your point is exactly right, that this is likely, because of the cost of deployment, the have-have-not problem is going to be exacerbated, not improved Mm -hmm. by 5G. And that's a very scary Mm -hmm. prospect, that we actually increase the size of our digital divide rather than alleviating it. Right. In perpetuity, potentially, right? Each new technology, it just increases more and more and more. Right. And, you know, we're having a conversation about policy keeping up with the technology, but there's also a lot to be considered. Can the technology keep up with itself? Um, when was the last time you used your 4G cell phone in a non-4G network? Works painfully slow, if at all. What happens when we start shifting our phones away from uh, 4G to 5G explicitly, and then you take that 5G cell phone out and try to operate it in a non-5G environment, which is not going to be in a lot of places for a really long time. How operable can you really be this, right. this, right. this close to now? Yeah, and I know, I know we've had we've had players in the provider community who have been, I think, trying to address access issues along sort of demographic lines and trying to make sure people with reduced means but who live in an area that are reachable that you find a way to get a basics package available so those kids can plug in you know to mm-hmm. things they'll need for education so those families can get information mm-hmm. and so forth you know rather than everybody trust to the library this old old vision of how the internet could work for underserved communities i think we've seen demographic efforts but it's the geographic efforts that are awfully difficult to, you know, to surmount, I guess. All right. So anything else before we leave it? Arthur, you mentioned a bill in Congress. What is that looking like now? Where are they? I mean, it doesn't seem like Congress gets much of anything done these days, (laughs) but this would certainly be one that we should be paying attention to. Sure. So it's the Streamline Act. Uh, It was introduced by Senator Thune and Senator Schatt. Um, It is currently sitting in committee in the Senate, um, as you alluded to there's not a lot moving right, right now right um which for reasons we're all i'm sure aware of uh but um there is there is hope in a lot of other places um you know while that that streamline act is concerning it doesn't sound like it has enough teeth to get out of committee and to the floor yet okay. uh, it doesn't mean that it won't happen um but there are things to, to be excited about uh we saw you know when we talk about the digital divide a lot of the the um uh, the haves and have-nots are determined by data that is collected by the FCC uh, through this Form 477 process. And unfortunately, a lot of this data is inaccurate and uh, incomplete. Uh, that data is used by congressional appropriators and federal agencies to determine who has Internet, who doesn't, right. uh, who has access to broadband, basic broadband, and how much money do we need to bridge that divide. Unfortunately, if the data is overstating the coverage, then we're underfunding the need. Um, there is a bill out called the Broadband Data Act um, that sounds like uh, it, it uh, actually has the juice to squeeze, so to speak. Uh, it has over 60 co-sponsors in the Senate, almost evenly split, bipartisan, Democrat to Republican. 60 is um, an important number. 60 in the Senate, is a I'm very told. important is, number yes, in is. the Senate, absolutely. <laughs> um, so we are encouraged. We do think that uh, we will see substantive changes through this package uh, at at 
rectifying the data collection prop, the problems with the data collection process at the FCC. Um, and fingers crossed, hopefully within the 116th, it could see the president's desk. We talk a lot about the importance of the census on this podcast. Just another reason why the census is so important because it plays into that data collection. We need to know where people aren't getting access to high-speed internet. It's, it's crucial. Joe, any closing comments before we, we wrap up? I will just say that the role of county government in um, deployment and um, operations of communication services over the years should be widely acknowledged. I mean, the networks are out there because counties facilitated and enabled it. And information and transparency is out there because of peg channels and because of efforts at the local level. And um, I I just hope that the story of the criticality, I as a broadband analyst work with local government and, and I've been doing this since the advent of the commercial internet. I can tell you we would not be where we are as a country if local government had not been involved in this. We are far further ahead than we would be otherwise. And that's a story that should be told more frequently. So, so MAKO tends to work on a four-year cycle with events like these. And around a year ago, about half of our county elected officials were newly elected into office and just took the reins. So this event was really built around the ABCs of county government. So welcome to your first role in elected <laughs> office. By the way, you run a jail now. So this is what that's about. Here we are a year later, and this is sort of like county government 301. By the way, you also have an implicit responsibility to be an advocate for your community to get connections through a combination of private carriers and regulated companies and all these, all this whole, this whole smattering of different players in the telecommunications and information field. So believe it or not, county elected officials, that's part of your gig as well. That'll do it for this live special episode of the Conduit Street Podcast coming to you from the Mako Winter Conference in Cambridge. I want to thank Arthur Scott and Joanne Hovis. Thanks again for joining us today, making the trek down to Cambridge. Greatly appreciated. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, feel free to subscribe. That way, these episodes will be sent directly to you. Also, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and of course, follow the Conduit Street blog. But until next week, Kevin signing off for Michael, Joanne, and Arthur. Have a great day.